Let's go to God in prayer. Just as you calm the seas, O oh God, you calm our hearts. Just as you are Lord of all creation, you are Lord of all that's created inside of us. Just as you are the Lord of our lives, O oh God, we worship you and we give ourselves to you in the dailiness of our lives. We thank you, God, for the gifts that we encountered this morning already. From the beauty of a, a sunrise, that was something to behold, to the hurriedness of being inside our warm and, and well-stocked homes and kitchens, to then making our way to be among friends, and we are grateful. And in that same moment of gratitude, <clears throat> God, in that same moment, simultaneously in a sacred tension, we are aware of the world around us. We are aware that there are some that are without shelter, without food, without medicine, without hope. And, oh, God, we want to be a mighty force to the good of that. So help us to be your church in whatever church we are part of the people who reach out in your name. We pray for those who are fearful, for those who are hungry, for those who are traumatized. And we pray, oh God, that one day this world will be as you see it, your kingdom come. So illuminate our minds, challenge our hearts, lift up our spirits, oh God, as only you can do. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. The extra piece of paper that you have this morning is simply the scripture reading, the Song of Moses and the Song of Miriam, but it's laid out in as a call to worship. Now, this isn't my idea. This was the biblical idea. This was the idea behind how this particular scripture is written and, and its meaning in being inserted where it is in the, in the uh, Hebrew Bible. It was written as a piece of worship. It was written as a liturgical uh, uh, antiphony response. And so I thought if it, was, if it was intended that way, then maybe it would be good for us to say it that way. So in that, uh, in that spirit of being raised up in the way that it has been raised up for generations, you be the P, I'll be the L, okay? So when you see an L, it's me, and when you see a P, it's you. And if you can't see the L or the P, the, it's the, um, the bold is you, and the plain is me, okay? And I'll start off. So people of God, let's come together and worship. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he cast into the sea. 
His picked officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. You blew with your wind and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. The peoples heard. They trembled. Pangs seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Terror and dread fell upon them. By the might of your arm, they became still as a stone until your people, O Lord, passed by, until the people whom you acquired passed by. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Then the prophet Miriam, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and with dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. The word of the Lord. So this, this section of our story consists of two hymnic pieces, hymns. And these hymnic pieces are voicing praise and thanksgiving to God for deliverance from Egypt, both historically, and this is very, very important and key to our discussion today, both historically and cosmically perceived. It's important not to slight either aspect of that, the historical and most importantly, actually for our uh, study, the cosmic implications of what has happened in Exodus. So the two songs of praise, we see the song of Moses and the song of Miriam, they're both preceded by nearly identical references to the saving act of God on behalf of Israel. That's how the, the couplet that Miriam uses is the couplet that's used with Moses. There's a reason for that, and I'll share that in a moment. But the highlights of the the what this does is it highlights this rhythm of salvation deed 
and song of praise. And you'll see this from the very beginning all the way to the very end of our scripture, whether it's Hebrew or not. It is God acts and we respond. That's kind of central almost to our Reformed faith. We don't really believe in our faith that anybody initiates anything with God, but that God initiates all things of relationship, of need, of everything, initiates that desire within our heart to respond. And so God is the initiator. And so it highlights that rhythm. God initiates, God comes towards us, we respond. God comes towards us, we respond. So that's why you see on Sunday mornings when we have a call to worship, that's how we start our worship service at the, at the traditional service. The traditional service is the leader acting as, the, as God's voice speaks and the people respond. And that's how this, uh, this particular scripture is set up also. But we also understand that salvation itself is nobody else's act except God. God is sal salvation is God's act. And the only appropriate response, therefore, is to attend to the God who saves. So the only response that could possibly happen, but and the way that it, it is responded to, it takes a critical form of telling the story and remembering the event in a ritual, as a ritual. So what comes next? When, when we recognize that salvation comes from God and God initiates this saving act. What, how do we respond? We respond in worship. And that's what comes next in this particular story. And we see that also in the story when they left, when they originally left the, um, e Egypt and they just made their way to the, the outer, you know, the outer boundaries. Out of the clutches of Pharaoh, they thought for a little while, the first thing they did was respond to God's saving act by worshiping. And we saw that incredible liturgy that had been created about remembering the, um, the Passover. So an approach to salvation does not, an approach of, to salvation that doesn't eventually become worship. And, and, and remembering, worship is remembering God's initiative and purpose and position as creator. Reduces salvation to a concept or a program or a technique that we can master and we control. So anytime that we, uh, anytime that we believe that, you know, what we have done has, has made, for example, we believe I, I've heard people say, I brought them, I, I saved somebody. I brought them to Jesus. Well, we can introduce somebody to Jesus, but we can't bring anybody to Jesus. That's God's act. That's God's salvation. You know, so we can't make claim to that. So any claim to the uh, opposite of that is not a true act of worship. Song has always been basic to worship. We know that in our own worship. Even in our contemporary, we get rid of everything in contemporary, but we don't get rid of singing because it's basic to worship. And as the act indicates what it says in more modern language, I'm singing my heart out to God. What a victory. God pitched horse and rider into the sea. So salvation is the source of our song. And whether that's salvation from a penalty from sin or slavery or addiction 
or from an attack by an enemy or from the lostness that we've always felt as human beings, whatever that is, that salvation that has occurred, well, what we're really saying is that without the experience of God's saving grace in our day-to-day lives, we have very little to sing about. So in essence, it's a play and a pun about that singing um, giving us the song that's in our hearts. Now, structurally, this is really, I think this is really interesting to me, is that structurally the role that's given to women at the beginning of Exodus, do you remember that role? It was an important role. We had five women that are named that uh, represent the, a, a very prominent role in moving the whole story of Exodus forward. They were almost solely responsible for moving the story forward in the way it, it was. We have the sister of Moses, and, um, who is not named, but historically we've always thought of her as this same Miriam. That was the sister that uh, hatched the plot and the and ran alongside the bank as the baby Moses was going down the river. And then when uh, Bitia, the Pharaoh's daughter, picked up that baby, Miriam runs in, the uh, sister runs in and says, hey, I know somebody who could nurse that baby for you. I mean, she's she's implemental in all of this. So we have Miriam, we have Bitia, we have Jochebed, who is, mother, is Moses' mother, who then raised him until he was of age to go to the palace. But then we have those two shifty, clever women from the very beginning, right? Shipra and Pua, the midwives, who said, what can we do? The Hebrew women give birth really fast. So we have this prominence of women that are built up from the very beginning. And the importance of women for the story is given prominence in this in this telling of this song once again. So if Miriam is identified with the unnamed sister of Moses, which traditionally we do, then what happens is she is the one that frames the whole Exodus story because she saves Moses from the river by her actions. And then she provides the final commentary on Israel's salvation from the Red Sea. And that is seen as in the couplet at the very end where we see Miriam's song. But here's the interesting thing. In terms of the history of tradition, the song of Miriam likely, most likely, came first. Because if you notice, the, uh, and then the song of Moses came as an expansion of her song. Because you can see that her hymn, the short few lines that is her hymn, provide the opening couplet to Moses' song, right? Go ahead and look at that for just a second. You can see it's the very same thing. So why did they flip those around? But in terms of the present, um, uh, well, there's a couple of reasons. One, this is a redactor. This is a person who is creating a liturgy. And what makes more sense to this redactor is that the one the people are following, Moses, is the one that initiates the worship, the praise. And so it's seen as taking the the celebration of Miriam and putting it into Moses' mouth to lead the worship. And then the worship is an antiphonal thing because what happens? What happens when Miriam, in her couplet, when Moses uh, supposedly sings, he just sings, right? But what does Miriam do in these few lines? What does she do? 
Yes, she gets out her tambourine, and she and it says all the women were dancing. Now listen, pay attention to this. Would it? How does it change the picture for you to understand that the women took out their tambourine and they were dancing and singing, and then this wonderful song of Moses came? You know, it makes a big difference, and it makes more sense to us. But in terms of this liturgy, it was important to to draw attention to Moses as the leader, and Moses as the leader being the um, the one who is able to lead the people in worship. And then, but they do not leave Miriam's couplet out of that, and it's very obvious that it's the beginning. So it's really a, a wonderful way of continuing to lift up the prominence of women and their mark as made in the story of Exodus. Now, one of the things that I think is so incredible is that the Song of Miriam and the Song of Moses are generally recognized as some of the oldest poetry in the Hebrew Bible. That means older than the poetry you saw back in Genesis, older than the oldest. That means thousands and thousands of years ago. Do you realize, think about this, do you realize that you and I just gave this antiphonal, um, wonderful uh, call to worship, expressing the same words that were used thousands and thousands of years ago by others who were worshiping? Isn't that incredible? of the longevity and, and the staying power of, of the people in relationship with God. And we're still reciting that to this day. So Miriam's response, though, is not just choral, because like I said, she gets up, she has her tambourine, and she has everybody dancing with her. And this calls attention to the fact that when you see a song, when you see musical instruments, when you see dancing in the Bible, you're looking at worship. And that's really important to remember in a few chapters down the road when we start getting to the golden calf and what happened then. And it, and it, it tells you to draw, pay attention to the fact of what those people were doing with that golden calf. But here, what, what this tells us, because it's instruments, Dancing and song, it tells us that this is a complex ritual in which the sea crossing is dramatically realized. So it's a reenactment. So this is sitting here, it's sitting here to say this is something that has happened that will be repeated in, like we do with communion and we do with Eucharist. We go on month after month after month, reenacting that so that we never forget what Jesus did. So they go on year after year after year in this cycle of how God has, has impinged God into history, this cycle of Passover and the crossing at the, at the Red Sea. So verse 1 through 21 shouldn't be seen as an isolated couple of songs or this isolated moment of ritual. It's part of a larger liturgical whole, and it reflects a dramatization of the crossing. Therefore, verses 1 through 21, they constitute a parallel. That means they run alongside to the Passover text. And to the two, and then the two of those, the Passover text, do you remember at the very end, after the Passover, when they got outside the city limits, 
What was the first thing they did? They worshipped. And you remember in that worship it said, and so they worshipped and those who hadn't been circumcised weren't included into that worship. All they needed to do was be circumcised. So what God is saying, God is creating this unifying event for the people. And the unifying event is an acknowledgement of a relationship they have with God. Isn't there just so much beauty in that a whole logical sequence of how God is working God's um, will and purpose in their lives. So um, the stories associated with Passover and sea crossing are kind of enclosed in this liturgical text. But it's important to remember that when such usage is combined with a poetic form, that the result is that the images associated with the events are even more impressionistic that means they are meant to give a feeling. They are meant to evoke a feeling of what of the relationship they have with God, even more so than in chapter 14 with the Passover. So an attempt to reconstruct a detail of an event from this type of material is doomed to fail because this material is meant to be a, a material of worship, not a material of history. For example, the sea that we see that they're crossing. The sea symbolizes fear and prayer. And the dry land indicates strength and confidence. So you can see that we are looking not only historically, but as I said before, we're looking cosmically because these stories are not just about the Hebrew people. But as we go along in history, in, in this history, we see that the doors and the parameters are opening wider and wider to include all of, all of creation. And that's been true from the very beginning. Remember the plagues was part of all creation, not just of the Hebrew people and not just of the Egyptian people, the Hebrew people symbolizing the will of God, the Egyptian Pharaoh and his court symbolizing evil. So those two symbols come together in this. But the sea also symbolizes a lot more. The conflict between the Lord and Pharaoh over the fate of the Israelites is the central story of salvation in the book of Exodus, right? It's that conflict, it's a central story. But in fact, God's control over the chaotic sea is central to the entire story of salvation history. At the very beginning, when you started in Genesis, what was there at the very beginning? Yeah. First it was nothing, and then it was the Spirit of God was where? Hovering over the waters, right? And then we see in this wonderful creation uh, poem how God is the God that brings order into chaos and divides the, the world into land and into sea and gives borders and boundaries. And that's said again and again in Psalms and so on. And, and we see that every time, we're, every time this, this image of sea and God being in control of the sea is used, that is another way of saying God is in control. The wilderness journey of salvation history is inaugurated with the drying up of the Red Sea. And forevermore, it is going to be before and it's going to be after. You see, before the Red Sea, what did we have? We had a, 
a, a family, right? We had a family. We had a creation story, and then we had a family, and then we had a family that's called by God to leave that and go somewhere else, and then that family gets bigger, and then we have 12 sons, and then they go, you see, the story has just evolved, and all of a sudden, we are at this point where Moses has brought the people out, and we are at this juncture now of who God has been and how God has made them a people now, and when they cross that Red Sea on the other side, they are going going to be forever changed from who they have been. And yet the long arm of God's purpose is the thread that runs through until even to this moment in this room to this day, the thrill of God's purpose. So it starts with that hovering over the waters. Then we have this Red Sea crossing. And then when they even get to the promised land, so to speak, they are confronted with the Jordan River. And once again, there is this story of God bringing them through the impossible gate of dry land. They go from fear, they go into uh, acceptance. And, and then what happens in the New Testament? What happens when Jesus is out on the Sea of Galilee? Do you remember that story? And a storm rises up, and the people are, they're frightened. It's not just some little storm like we see in San Diego. It's like a storm that I saw in South Carolina. You know, it is like, oh my goodness. And what does Jesus do? Calms the storm. Who calms the storms? Who brings order out of the chaos? If that doesn't point them towards, because these, these guys knew these stories, and the readers and the hearers of, this, of these stories knew these stories at the beginning, before, it was, before the Gentiles were, uh, became Christians. So this God, who is this man that calms the sea? So we see that forever. But then we also see that this song is not just a, an explosion of jubilant gratitude. Because as we think about their walk through that corridor of dry land, and as we think about that space of crossing, there is a liminal space that exists right in the middle of that. Are you familiar with what liminal space is? Maybe some of you are. Liminal space is that space in between where you've been and where you're going. Now, a really a perfect, I can't think of a better example of that than a trapeze artist. When a trapeze artist is on t up top and swings out on that bar and the bar swings from the other side, what does he have to do in order to catch that other bar? Yeah, well, he has to reach, but he also has to let go of that bar. And there is this fraction, fraction of a nanosecond when neither hand is on a bar. Just a fraction, hopefully. <laughs> and, and that fraction, that nanosecond in the center of that is liminal space. Now, sometimes liminal space takes a lot longer. And the truth of it is, we're all familiar with liminal space. Have we all not been confronted with letting go of what was in order to go towards what will be? but not knowing what will be. And we know that in that liminal space, before we get to the other side, it can be very disorienting. It can be very frightening. 
it can really weigh on us. We can be shaking in our boots in that liminal space. But that liminal space in this one song and the way they describe it, that liminal space has to be walked on with faith. And that is that God will carry you when you don't have that faith, will carry you in that liminal space when you're in between. There's a, a, a um, like a 12th century mystic called John of the Cross. And he wrote this incredible, he's, he was a Spaniard. So he wrote this incredible poem in Spanish that's been translated a million times, but it's called The Dark Night of the Soul. And in The Dark Night of the Soul, he describes this experience. He describes it as a blackened field where you come out and it's black and you have to cross over this charred field. And you don't even recognize that there's little, little growths springing up all around from that char, but you don't recognize that. You can't see it anyway in his poem. It's really quite beautiful. So in this liminal space, we're brought to this place. And so once more co cosmically, we are, are, are pushed and challenged and loved to understand that God is with us in the in-between and that we can have faith and trust in God. But the reality that this song uh, comes to express is re really a strange reality because the song is expressing, on the one hand, a massacre of people. And it's also expressing an overwhelming physical suffering by those people who are drowned in that sea. And on the other hand, it's the joy of God's salvation. Those two things, massacre and suffering and the joy of salvation. How do you reconcile those two things? How do we hold that in a sacred tension? And complicating this further is the intimation of doom that, that the Israel hanging over the Israelites' heads even in that moment too. Because it's really important to remember that they are just now getting to know this God. They did not know this God. This God came in after 400 years of what they perceived as silence and where they had begun to worship other gods, trying to keep a thread of their, of their understanding alive in some rituals, yet not having a relationship. So their relationship with a God is somebody that gets mad if you don't offer these offerings and you know all of this stuff. That's their understanding. And so, they're, so how do they know that they're exempt from what they've just seen God do? So they see this God and they know this power of this God and they're just getting to know the one true God of Israel. So in a time of harsh justice, their feeling and their experience out there is that no one is really safe. So how is it possible to sing and to praise God for acting both cruelly and kindly? And the relationship between God's mercy and God's hard justice is a central theme of the song. And I think it's really, really critical, I'll go back and, and say this again, that we understand this story not historically, although there is history involved with it, but cosmically, that is talking about all of the world and all of life. So there's a complex reality as we look at these two tensions that is celebrated in this song. And that complex reality is there is death in life and there is life. 
There is death and there is life. There is suffering and there is joy. There is justice and there is mercy. And all of these things are a part and parcel of being a human being in life. And this song is lifting that up, saying because of the hardship, because of this, this is, a, is, this is part of life. So you can still sing, you can still celebrate, you can still grieve, you can still feel sorrow, but God is in the midst of it all. So the human response to what God has done ha actually has a multi-directional character. And that means that the response, the people respond in, in different directions. The first direction, of course, is to God, because God is the author of salvation. So God, and they do that with faith and trust and thanksgiving and this song of praise. And then the next direction that it shifts to is Israel's leadership. So it's trust in Moses. Moses is the speaker here. Moses is the song. And so the human response is not just to God, but it's to Moses as well. And then it's also the human response is also to the Israelite generations yet to come, retelling the story and reappropriating in saving power within the various aspects of worship, a worship and religious commitment. So it's paying attention. They're saying, tell the story over and over again of what God has done. And tell the story that there is justice and there is mercy and there is suffering and there is joy and there is all of this stuff that is mixed into life. And there is God in the middle of it all to redeem it. And then, of course, it's directed towards the wider world. One of the things you might have noticed that you probably, I have a hunch that if we did like a Bible, like Jeopardy, you know, uh, that, you, that you would not have remembered this. And that is that this song speaks to the wider world. And so we have them talking about and Moab and Edom and Philistia, all of these, all of these places outside of Egypt are going to be shaking and trembling at their in their boots as the your people pass them by, as your people come by because they're going to know what God has done. And it also intimates that the whole world knows what God has done. That the whole world is knowledgeable about God. It intimates that this is a, a bigger story and a bigger picture. So uh, it, it also transcends a, a simple split between us and them. There, it, the song, because the song itself is a brand new experience. Now get this. The song talks about a brand new experience, not just for the people, being liberated, but for God being a liberator. If you look at all the scriptures that have come before, God has never been in a position to liberate his people. And so now God, this is a new ex expression of God as well, a new experience for God. So God, so the way it's set up and the way we're told about it it is projecting for us this inter-responsiveness between God and people. God saw their suffering, responded to the suffering as liberator. The people see God responding and are liberated. 
So there is an interconnection and a, um, a responsiveness between God and people. The human response to what God has done, like I said, has a multi-directional character. So it's all of that involved. Can you believe all this is involved in this little song? I mean, it's just incredible what these people can do. Uh, it's just, it blows my mind. The beauty, the symmetry, the logic, the, you know, the way that God's whole story unrolls and unravels for us in just a few verses. So the uh, Egyptian enemy is certainly historical, but just as certainly it's more involved. So the Egyptians are represented as meta-historical. And what do I mean by meta-historical? Well, meta-historical is the study of the way people put history together. That's what it is. So we know that there was a redactors, as we've said in uh, earlier uh, studies, uh, that were putting this history together and how they put that history together and their purpose for how they put it together is meta-historical. So we know that the Egyptians also represented meta-historical as the chaotic forces of the world. They were the symbol for everything that was chaotic. They were symbolized by that. And we've seen throughout the study that uh, how they represent the anti-creational forces in the world. Remember the plagues? How in the plagues, it was like a dismantling of creation. It was tit for tat. It was like God created the sun, now the, and the plague, the sun, the, it was complete darkness. God made the waters, and now the waters are undrinkable. God gave uh, stewardship of humans over the animals, and now the animals are overflowing uh, in the people, taking over their place, their niche. Well, this is the same thing. The anti-creational forces are symbolized by Egypt. And why is that? Because from the very beginning, God had a plan. And God's plan at the, very, at the, at the last day, my friends, God's plan is that for, for us to be in God's care. That's the plan. So how do we get there? This is, a, you know, this is part of this story. And so this story, uh, uh, God sets out in this story by saying, I'm going to make a promise to you when you leave here. What did he promise Abraham? Yeah, that you will be a blessing and that you'll have many, many children right? Not just children there, but many generations of children. And then Jacob is told the same thing. They're, you're going to over, you know, you're, you populate the world. And then when they get to Egypt, what does one of the pharaohs in the Moses time do to stop that purpose of God? Yes. He starts killing all the male children so that they cannot have children. Hebrew children. So what, what this force of anti-creation is doing is not just a terrible thing of infanticide, but it's stopping or feeling that it can stop or inhibit the purpose and the, and the, um, the will of God. And they're pr proving quite wrong in this particular sense. But we can see this by the absence of names for the pharaohs because we know that there was more than one, uh, more than five, probably more than 10, more than who knows for how long 
because we're not given any indication of how long things take place. But there's not one single pharaoh in this particular story that's named. And so the absence of that gives that um, uh, story a more a, of an impressionistic also story that Egypt actually was symbolic for all the evil and all the chaos in the world. And also the references of the divine judgment on Egypt's gods show that the enemy and the battle are cosmic in scope. That it's not just getting the people out of Egypt. It's that they have these other gods that they are worshiping. And one by one, God, the, the, the story has God reacting and imposing God's superior presence in the face of gods that weren't really real but were the idolatry, if you will, of people who did not understand the bigger picture, who thought that when the river rose, it was because the river god was mad, or the trees didn't produce because the wood god was, you know, needed attention without acknowledging or being even understanding that there was a creator of all of these things. So, um, so we have... The, uh, this anti-creation and God responding to the anti-creation. So as we know, traditional weapons would not be useful in such a battle as this against the forces of all chaos. So the forces God uses in the defeat of the Egyptians are non-historical, although they have an historical effect. So it's not a great battle that has risen up. I mean, if the, if, the, if the Hebrew people were so populous that they were overrunning Egypt, the more of them than there were of the Egyptians, one might ask, why didn't they just rise up in rebellion and take over? Well, that because that has nothing to do with the forming a people who would then become the people of God who would bring us to be here where we are today. That would not have been in keeping with the purpose of God. So God does not fight them by, by traditional means, but God uses nature. And all of nature becomes the weapon to free the people from the chaos into order. And, and it's God, the creator, it says, that keeps up the waters and covers the Egyptians with floods and winds that blow and, and whose earth swallows them up. And by doing that, by this, this uh, uh, way of interacting with the world, it talks about God thereby creates a people. And in the song, it's really interesting to me because it says, acquires a people, takes hold of and acquires a people. So they went from this group of, of individual citizens and whatever and oppressed slaves and all of this they went from that to now being God's people and the language of creation is drawn upon to speak of Israel's liberation from Egypt but God doesn't accomplish this in in a, a unmediated way so it's understood that the Egyptian army then is meta-historical also they are given a a element and a personality to the pharaoh and the, the, all of the uh, forces are given that um, personality that encompasses the chaos that was going on in the world. 
and the forces that are concentrated in that world. Martin Luther King Jr. gave a wonderful sermon at some, at, at some point in his ministry. And it was a sermon about, um, you know, it was, it was centered on the civil rights and the oppression of slaves and all of that. But this is what he said. He said, Egypt symbolized evil in the form of humiliating oppression, ungodly exploitation, and crushing domination. And then he posed this question, are, is the United States now Egypt? So that was the, you know, that was part of his um, sermon. And so you can see how when we demonize all the bad into one country or one people, that's what exactly what the scripture is doing here in order to make a point, in order to give us the purpose that was behind God. So against such an enemy, traditional weapons won't do. So God fights the chaos monster with weapons that are appropriate to the enemy. And, from, and those are from the sphere of nature. So God's activity in creation overturns that which is chaos. God brings the people forward through this oppression as this just rabble, just this great uh, a number of people and brings them into order. And as we saw in the Passover text, if you remember, that order consisted of the first thing they're going to do is worship. And that's how order is first begun to be established. No, you can't Worship if you're not circumcised. So then we start, you know, setting up the boundaries and setting up the rules and setting up all of that. The justice of God's created order exacts an appropriate judgment on the anti-creational oppressors. So as a consequence, the morning light breaks and through the darkness and the people walk on dry land. They pass through that liminal space that they've been in for years and years and years of leave, having left um, the land of their fathers and been in this liminal space called Egypt and in this liminal space of walking on dry land and they've reached the other side. And now what? God's just order is vindicated and a new creation emerges into the brightness of a new day. And it's called redemption because it's the reestablishment, the redeeming, the reestablishment of a created order of justice and a specific time and place so that we can grab our minds around it and understand it. So that it tells you a little bit about the importance of law in the Exodus. So as we close, what I want to say is this. I think it's very important for us to understand liminal space. And if you are up against a water right now that you feel is just overwhelming you, that you feel threatened by, whether it's a decision or a prognosis or, or a relationship that's damaged or a loss that's beyond speakable or just a, a lostness inside of yourself, Perhaps you're in that liminal space. And what is available to you is that there is nothing that can separate you from God, even in the liminal space. So you can have the trust and the faith if you're confronted with leaving what you knew and going to what is and not knowing what is. All I can say is 
let go, and grab, and God will have you in that moment as you reach out for what's next. Amen. Okay. Thank you all so much. This has been such a great year. Yay!